Chapter 7. Women and Their Masters The Peter Street side of Deansgate once shared with the Wood Street neighbourhood the questionable notoriety of being the most dangerous district in the city, but of late years a determined course of action has been pursued by the police, which has resulted in thinning to a very large extent the ranks of the worst offenders. The beer-houses in which nightly assembled lawless characters of the worst type have one by one been deprived of their licences, and they now do duty as lodging-houses, the large open rooms being peculiarly adapted for affording sleeping accommodation to persons who are not particularly fastidious as to the nature of the couch they occupy. Entering one of these places in Jackson's Row, we marched along a passage and came upon what had been the old tap-room, a long low room with benches and rough wooden tables, at which a few men of dirty and unkempt aspects were sitting smoking short pipes. They had to all intents and purposes nothing to occupy themselves with, not even cards or dominoes. But they listened to a mechanical organ near the door that was grinding out a lively melody at the top of its pitch. The room was fairly comfortable, and if its occupants were rather uncivilised in appearance, and had as much dirt as shirt to their backs, none of them were of so low a caste as the Charter Street or Wood Street roughs. Men of the order who have been convicted, and wish to work for a living in preference to resorting to their old practices, often locate themselves on this side of Deansgate, instead of joining their friends over the way. Hence it might be argued that the pick of the timid and irresolute congregate on one side of this populous street, and thoroughgoing thieves on the other. Bootle Street and Lad Lane were taken next, but in the matter of meeting people of notoriety we were singularly unfortunate. Mac tried house after house to see if he could come across any pals, but he was disgusted on discovering that the old order had changed, giving place to the new, and that where, years ago, he could have fraternised with a dozen crossmen, he had now only the dubious pleasure of greeting square folk. These were poor enough, certainly, and their abodes were far from being attractive, for squalor and misery reigned supreme in many of them. There was a lack of cleanliness and comfort in the interior of the houses that was very shocking, but this was perhaps only the natural result of people living and sleeping in the same small room. In one house, three women were crouching in the dark round a fire, the blaze from which alone afforded light to guide us, and one of them was sobbing bitterly. We thought at first she was crying on account of a child she was holding to her breast, and who looked sick unto death, but we rapidly found out our mistake. She was not lamenting her own trials, but those of her sister, a fine handsome woman, but whose features were for the time so fearfully bruised that I could scarcely trace their outline. Both eyes were blackened and almost closed, her cheek was cut and discoloured, her lips bleeding and swollen, and in her hair were traces of blood as if she had been beaten on the head. She must have been suffering great physical pain, but she never spoke a word, only drawing her shawl closer over her head, and sinking down nearer to the fire, as if seeking comfort. In answer to our questions, the woman with the child soon explained the matter. Her sister was living with a man as his wife, and because she would not go out into the streets, he had struck and kicked her until she had escaped from her own house to the one she was now in. The woman herself told us, He'd done it afore, but she would never go out at nights for all his cruelty. He could kill her if he liked, but she wouldn't do it. Why didn't she tell the police? 
because she wasn't going to round inform on him for it he'd done a stretch year once for garrotting and she didn't want him to be sent away again yes he was all right when he hadn't got the drink in him he'd be sorry to-morrow and she should go back again it was only after a great deal of skilful questioning that we managed to elicit this information and i marvelled at the forbearance of the woman who could return to a man who had first of all attempted to degrade her and then half killed her because she chose to be faithful to him i know him said mac and a full badden he is too especially to women he's always living with some girl he's got hold of and when he's tired of one he just thrashes her till she'll go on the street and then if she won't give him money he finds someone else why once he met a servant girl made her drunk and drugged her in one of the cribs abused her as much as he liked and then stole the only two quids sovereigns she'd got in the world she'd come to town to look for a shop and had sewed her money in her stays but he ripped them up and got the sovs did he clear out after it not a bit he was booked by one of the d's detectives and did a double stretch two years for it at sessions he's no worse than many of em only he never cares who he drops on i fervently hoped that many of em would not cross our path for it was unpleasant to feel that a ruffian of this breed might take it into his brutal head to drop on one of us the estimate of women in these quarters is a very low one for inquiry proved that they are kicked and ill-treated as a matter of course and where they are not the professional companions of thieves they are something worse we visited several more houses in backlad lane and back allport and i was shown the runs and means of escape from one street to another the place is almost like a rabbit warren for each entry leads into another and each court abuts on its neighbour in the most inexplicable way in addition to this there are means of through communication from the lodging-houses and such a labyrinth of passages that any stranger must inevitably come to grief if once involved in the maze fustian cutters and other poverty-stricken workers live in these courts and if these articles were dealing with other than true criminals some curious information could be given as to the mode of life and experiences of these unfortunate creatures as poverty is no sin however it would be unfair to expose their misfortunes in such bad company as we are now associating with in gregson street we wandered into another large lodging-house which had once been a beer-house and what struck me most in this bare and comfortless tenement was a printed notice stuck up requiring payment in advance there were a few men having supper in different parts of the front room one discussing a rasher of ham and a bowl of tea and another cooking a red herring in a very summery manner he pushed the fish between the bars after it had sputtered and blazed on the coals took it out with a pocket-knife which he thrust right through the middle and placed it smoking on his plate two or three live embers adhered to the sides but he picked them off with his hands licked his fingers to get rid of the superfluous oil and then calmly dissected the dainty morsel with his most useful knife in an inner room unusual luxuries were provided in the shape of a bit of looking-glass about two inches square nailed to the wall and an inch of dirty comb suspended by a string from a hook how many thousand dirty heads that wreck of a comb had done duty upon it would be difficult to say but there it hung in silent sorrow doubtless bewailing the loss of its teeth through extreme age in a second and smaller house two youths were lying on a bench about six feet long by eighteen inches wide 
Each lay lengthways with his head upon the other's feet, and the lads had crept so close together for the sake of warmth that it was hard to distinguish to which body the various limbs belonged. They slept as soundly on their hard bed as if comfortably between the sheets, and afforded a good example of the impartiality of tired nature's sweet restorer. In a third dwelling, a stout red-faced man with, with clean-shaven cheeks and a bullet head, on which the hair was scarcely half an inch long, snored on a small form, his head thrown back and supported by the wall. This was the redoubtable fat Alec, but he was awfully savage at being shaken up by Mac, and would not keep his eyes open, but swore with them shut in a manner to alarm anyone unaccustomed to the general literature of blasphemy. "'He's been cut up about the loss of his woman,' explains Mac. "'She's doing a seven-stretch now, and only began it in the summer. She was fly enough to keep them both, and now he has to do as best he can without her.' No wonder this pensioner on a woman's abilities was cast down at the way in which he had been served by luck. Dyer's Lane and Fleet Street were the next on my list, and here again I found many traditions. But the good old days had passed, and instead of ruffianism being rampant, the stern self-assertive power of the criminal law is in the ascendant, and comparatively few desperate characters can be found. The lodging-houses and general dwellings are on a par with those in Lad Lane and Gregson Street, but many of them have a history which would startle the staid residents in busy Deansgate if the walls could only speak. One of the best things that has happened for the neighbourhood is the pulling down of the poor cottage property at the rear of these streets to make way for the new Midland Railway, and the effect will soon make itself apparent in the disappearance of the disreputable and immoral men and women that have so long haunted Windmill Street and Peter Street. The good work the police began has been completed by the railway company, and the peaceful law-abiding working people who are compelled to hang out in these marked quarters should be thankful that though they may still be under the ban of poverty, they have no longer the degrading association of thieves to poison their lives. Something of this kind crossed my mind as we were going up Fleet Street, and saw stretching before us the drear vacant space, eloquent in its desolation, of modern improvement and civilising influences that was so soon to be covered with the turmoil and life of a great railway station. While in one of the back kitchens, Mac, who had grown more and more downcast at meeting none of his old friends, suddenly found his tongue and gave me the benefit of one of his experiences. There was a man lived here once, he said, who was about the worst I ever fell across, and he did a trick which you perhaps won't believe. He'd three daughters, and two of them had gone to the bad, but still lived with him, as he took all the money they could get. The third was as fine a gal as ever came out of Fleet Street, but she was a cut above a lot, and wouldn't have any patter with the men who came to the house. One night, the old man was drunk, and sold her to one of the fellows who had been drinking with him. At least, he took half a dollar, half a crown, from him, and said he could take the girl altogether, and do what he liked with her. Well, she was called in from a pub, beer house, over the way, and the man got hold of her and insulted her. She fought like a cat to get away, but he was too strong, and they rolled over and over on the floor. The father and a lot of fellows looking on and enjoying the fun. I came just in time to see the finish, for in the struggle a shovel that was stuck in the fire and was red hot caught in the girl's dress and was dragged across the bricks. She was frightened of being set on fire and threw the brute off her, he fell with his hands across that shovel, and was burnt pretty smart, 
for he couldn't touch a thing with his fingers for weeks. Yes, she got away that time, but she went like her sister's, though I think she's married now. Before leaving I was shown number 11, now a decent lodging house, but once a den of fearful notoriety, and the central place of meeting of hundreds of the most unscrupulous crooked men in England. End of part 7